Hurley, welcome to Whose We Are. These podcasts are a series of discussions about spirituality, stewardship, and social justice. We will talk here about what we do with our lives once we appropriate to ourselves the wondrous gifts God has given us and acknowledge that we truly belong to God. Check out whoseweare.com for a wide range of discussions on these issues and also wrestlingwiththeword.com for comments on the biblical passages assigned in the Revised Common Lectionary for Sunday morning worship. This is episode number one. I call this first section like breathing out and breathing in. Let's be honest. A different way of doing business is not the tie that binds us together as Christians. That tie is none other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that God became flesh and lived among us, identified himself with the poor of the world, suffered at the hands of both religious and political authorities of his day, died on a cross for the sins of all our kind, and was raised from the dead. That news is what defines us and brings us together. The Apostle Paul, in his epistle to the Colossians, puts it very beautifully when he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of the cross. God was pleased to dwell. God was pleased to reconcile. God was pleased to bring us and all things together. We hear that message of reconciliation, redemption, justification, salvation as we gather as the church community. Those of us whose tradition includes the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper got bathed in public and now continue our life together eating and drinking. The foundation of those sacraments, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, is nothing other than the same good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose again to eternal life. We listen to God's word address us as we taste the announcement, the body of Christ given for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. In Martin Luther's understanding of the Lord's Supper, God nourishes us through that word just as much as the air we inhale sustains our lives. We can hold our breath, though, only so long. Eventually, we have to exhale. We have to breathe out all that unconditional love that God has poured on us. Janine and I spoke one evening at a Mennonite church not far from here. I was struck by a large poster over the door that no one could miss on leaving the sanctuary. It said simply, So what? I don't think I was alone in assuming that the sign was challenging everybody who had just heard the gospel of Jesus Christ to think about what they do with that gospel until they come back next time. We Lutherans get a little bit more liturgical as we say, Go in peace, serve the Lord, or go in peace, remember the poor, or even go in peace, share the good news. But it all comes down to, so what? What do you do with what you just received? The Word of God judges us, 
saves us, defines us, and dismisses us. God sends us out, dismisses us into the world, which is as large as the neighborhood where we parked our cars and as small as the globe. God sends us into the world that God created and that belongs to God and that God loved so much that God gave his only son, loving the neighbor. As soon as we start exhaling out there, we are all about the work of God. As you know well, there are ten commandments that appear in the Old Testament. The teachings of Jesus, according to the Gospel stories, boil them down to two, and even a different two. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle Paul tells us in several places that the whole law of God is summed up in one commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He writes that in Romans 13 and in Galatians 5. Why would that be? Why would God omit the first commandment according to the Gospels? You shall love the Lord your God. I think the author of First John tells us why. The way to love God out there is to love our neighbors. In fact, the author of the epistle of 1 John gets very explicit about it. If anyone says, I love God and hates his neighbor, that person is a liar. The neighbors are the individuals we encounter day to day. Our families, our friends, the people next door, the checkout person at the grocery store, the reception at the doctor's office. But then there are the neighbors we never see, never get to know, never call by name. Our neighbors are those vast members in society, in our own country or in some other lands throughout the globe that God created. That teaching that our neighbors include people very different from ourselves and even the ones who don't live next door is what Jesus intended when he defined for the lawyer in Judaism that the neighbor was the person in need and the one who proved to be neighbor was none other than a hated Samaritan. The neighbors comprise the whole human race. There are over six billion of us. Two-thirds of our neighbors have needs beyond our comprehension. About 1.3 billion people live on less than a dollar a day. Another 2.7 billion struggle on less than two dollars a day. Globally, nearly 200 million people are unemployed, while millions more are underemployed and don't have enough work or income to support their families. When employment is scarce or wages are too low, children suffer the most. They may have to work long hours in fields or factories to help support the family rather than attend school. Families without reliable income cannot provide sufficient and nutritious food or access basic health care, both of which negatively affect their children's health and development. Who, then, is our neighbor? To whom can we be neighbors? How can our breathing out the love of God help that vast number of neighbors? How can we love those neighbors in dire need and by so doing 
love the Lord our God. What does neighborly love look like in an impersonal world? The clothing that love wears in public. Out there, the form that love takes is justice. Many people shirk the word because they say it's impossible to define. And since no one agrees on what justice is, how can we possibly pursue it? Well, the Bible is quite clear about what justice means. Justice is a relationship. It is so personal and intimate a relationship that justice has a lover. According to Psalm 99, the lover of justice is God, the mighty king, the creator of the universe. Justice is the committed relationship that God has with the world. Justice, along with righteousness, is what God breathes out to rule the world, so says Psalm 97. Justice is what God calls the human community to distribute to one another. Justice is what God requires, along with kindness and humility, according to the prophet Micah. Justice is what holds the human community together. And God loves justice. God loves it when it all comes together. Justice, you see, is the form that love for the neighbor takes when we have more than six billion neighbors. How to pursue justice involves sacrificial love along with human reason and even a strategic use of enlightened self-interest. That's not an easy prescription, but maybe there aren't any. And I say that even in spite of the fact that Jesus taught about labor and investments of money a number of times. On one occasion, Jesus tells about the laborers in the vineyard who receive the same pay whether they work from morning until evening or for just the final hour. Now, if we use that teaching as a prescription for labor practices, no one would show up. Be honest, no one would show up until the last hour. Nothing would get done or produced. No company could last a week. Jobs would end, salaries would cease, nobody would eat. Jesus' parable, you see, was a metaphor about the kingdom of God. How about the grace of God reaches out to include all sorts of people, no matter whether they came to faith as youngsters or at the very end. Money and salary in Jesus' teachings are just the metaphor for good teaching about God's grace and the kingdom to come. But lacking prescriptions about wages and work, the Bible does indeed tell us about God's will for humanity, about what comprises justice, about the values by which we make our efforts to exhale God's love, and about the interconnection of all God's creation. On Wholeness We have two creation stories in the Bible, the global story of Genesis 1 and the local oasis story of Genesis 2. In the first one, God identifies humanity as made in the image of God and we're all made at once, immediately. There's a community of people. In the second story, God creates 
one human at a time for a while, calling the first one made a living soul, and recognizing rather quickly it is not good that the man be alone. And so God made the animals and gave them to Adam to name, to organize by species, and to understand them. But among all of the creatures that God made there was not a partner for Adam, and so God created Eve. In both stories, the first and the second, you see, God created humans to be intimately connected to God and to one another in a community. Now, what did God consider to be essential for this human community? Number one, God made a home, living space. That was the entire world in the first story, and the local oasis in the second. Second, God gave food. Every green plant in the first story, and trees with fruit in the second. Third, God gave animals and birds and fish with whom the humans could coexist. Fourth, God gave to humans the gift of reason and wisdom. How else would one classify the other living things by name? Observing, gathering, collecting, naming, it's what we today call science. Five, God gave to humans the gift of labor, responsible dominion, not domination, mind you, but dominion over the animals and the birds and the fish, according to the first story, and in the second story, the responsibility to work and to protect the garden that bore the food. When God was creating each piece of the universe in the first story, God evaluated it, saw that it worked, and declared it was good. But when God finished and saw that it all worked together as a universe, God said it was very good. God loves it when it all comes together. God made human life healthy and whole. The many parts are so interconnected for this healthy life that when one piece falls, so do the others. We see that very clearly in the next chapter of the Bible, the infamous Genesis 3, where the first couple disobeys the only command God gave them. The relationship with God went sadly awry. The community fell apart. All of a sudden it became one ruling over the other, man ruling over woman. The relationship with the animals turned hostility, heels on snakes' heads. The food was a plateful of thorns and thistles, and their labor became toil. The word is not simply a synonym for labor. The Hebrew word that's translated toil means anxiety, stress, frustration, anguish. And besides that, the people ended up living out their days east of Eden, away from paradise, far from the healthy environment God intended them to have. God is not pleased when it falls apart. We know from a variety of sources that human beings spent many, many years gathering food and hunting for food before we ever got to producing food through agriculture. 
but the biblical writers did not know that. They, after all, lived in the area of the Fertile Crescent, and, and there eating was already based on agriculture. And so in the biblical version of things, starting with the profession of farming, even in Genesis 2, other professions developed by the time we reach Genesis 4. Farming allowed people to live together in large communities, and in such population explosions, new occupations developed, like raising livestock, making bronze and iron tools, and even providing music. By the way, quite apart from the Bible, for a very powerful story about how all that location worked out to the benefit of people living in certain latitudes and to the detriment of other people living outside those latitudes, see the interesting book by Jared Diamond, Guns, Germs, and Steel. But no matter what the occupation, toil had already entered the world of work precisely because sin was so universal. Sin affects everything we do. The Old Testament tells us it will take God's creation of a new heaven and a new earth to undo what humanity has done in this creation since the afternoon of the first day. The prophet uh, of Isaiah 65 tells us that in the new creation and new earth there will be no more weeping over untimely deaths, no more hostility between humans and animals, or even among animals themselves. The relationship between people and God will be as intimate as it was in the beginning. As for labor and toil, this is the way it's written. They shall build houses and live in them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. My chosen people shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain. They shall, in other words, not toil. You see, God will make it all turn out the way God loves it to be, whole and just and interconnected. But what about the time between the beginning of creation and the new heavens and the new earth that God will create in the future? What does the Bible tell us about work and trade here and now? Trade and the Poor. Let's look first at the Old Testament. The book of Proverbs becomes particularly important precisely because the Proverbs have more to do with being human and living in the world of creation rather than specifically being the chosen people of God. The book of Proverbs gives us a whole variety of teachings that are not therefore specifically Israelite but more broadly human. Proverbs is a collection of, yes, proverbial teachings that were very, very common in the ancient world. We call it the wisdom tradition. The ancient Assyrians and Babylonians and Egyptians and Canaanites and Israelites just called it wisdom. Wisdom is this international attempt to understand how the world fits together and how by understanding its fit we can live in it with some success. Wisdom speaks 
not so much about sin, but about foolishness, about folly. But the results seem to be the same. Like many ancient Proverbs, there are some teachings in the book of Proverbs that tell us about the ill effects of laziness. The son who sleeps instead of working during harvest time will bring shame upon himself. Uh, Proverbs 10. An idle person will earn no food and thus suffer hunger. Proverbs 19. Yet the Proverbs move beyond these very simple teachings of rewards and punishments to deal with the suffering of the poor at the hands of others. It is some people's foolishness, otherwise called sin, that cause others to suffer misfortune and injustice. Think about this one in Proverbs 13. The fallow ground of the poor yields much food, but it is swept away by injustice. The difference between the haves and the have-nots is not simply a matter of work or idleness or location on the globe, but injustice done to those who have so little to begin with. One of the ways that we understand words in the Bible is to make note of the words that accompany them. Alongside the word poor, for example, you'll find words like afflicted, needy, and oppressed. But another way to understand the meaning of words is to note what words are opposite them. In the entire Old Testament, what we would expect, actually, never occurs, namely, that the opposite of poor is rich or wealthy. The opposite of poor is ruthless, wicked, oppressor, villain, godless. According to the prophets, retaining people in poverty is a result of the injustices that occur in business transactions, so says Amos, and in courts of law, so says Isaiah. But according to the law of God, treating laborers with dignity, especially the poor, means paying the wages fairly and timely because the Lord is watching. So we hear in Deuteronomy 24. When we try to sum it all up, then, work in the Old Testament view tends to be a bit ambiguous. On the one hand, it's good and a necessary part of God's creation. On the other hand, it is toil because of sin. On the one hand, work leads to benefits. On the other hand, injustice can deprive hard-working people of the fruits of their work. On the one hand, work is vital to continue the world's order. On the other hand, it's limited by God's own example and God's command to rest the Sabbath. On the one hand, work is cooperating with God in the realm of creation. On the other hand, in the realm of redemption or salvation, work is exclusively God's. Now what about the New Testament? The New Testament books are primarily interested in announcing who Jesus is and what God accomplished in Jesus, namely the work of salvation or reconciliation or justification. 
that work is all God's. Jesus' ministry is all about his announcement that the kingdom of God has begun in his presence, in his teaching, in his healing, and especially in his death and resurrection. Much of the New Testament also focuses on the rather immediate return of Christ in glory to establish that glorious kingdom of God unambiguously, there for all to see. That too will be God's work. Now here's the problem. Since God has already done the critical work, and since the end is so near for New Testament writers, what's the point of human work? So thought the Christians in Thessalonica. And so Paul had to write to them like this, For we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. And so Paul admonishes them, Anyone unwilling to work should not eat. Paul sounds like an old wisdom teacher. No work, no eats. The Apostle Paul's teachings on the subject work, though, are really quite profound. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul urged work for a variety of reasons. Because it results in independence from others. It provides resources with which to show love and gains respect from others. Work provides contact with the world, and it's in the world that work can be a service to God and to neighbors, even while waiting for the day of the Lord to arrive. In Ephesians, the apostle denounces the Robin Hood model by writing, Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. That's in Ephesians 4. And applying that same motive to his own life, Paul tells the elders from Ephesus, I worked with my own hands to support myself and my companions. In all this I have given you an example that by such work we must support the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, for he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. We have no idea where Jesus would have said that, but indeed in Acts 20 in his farewell speech to the elders of Ephesus, Paul does cite that as part of the tradition he received, but he says that work is the way we support the weak. In his writings, then, the Apostle Paul values work as an important aspect of life between the time of Jesus' resurrection and the day when he comes again. Work sustains life. Work benefits others. Work provides opportunity for serving. Work sets an example for others to follow. Work brings a person honor. Indeed, work is one of the ways we contribute to God's world and to the people who live in it beside us. Labor is the word for productive work, appreciated work, sustaining work, service work. Fruitful labor brings people honor. The opposite known to billions of people around the world today is toil. It can dishonor people made in the image of God just as you and I are. When the pieces fit together. We saw in our discussion of the creation stories that work is one of the pieces that make up the wholeness of life. Work is an integral part of God's will for humanity.
In Thomas Friedman's book, Hot, Flat, and Crowded, the author tells a couple of stories about Dr. Jatna Supriyatna, who works with Conservation International. Dr. Supriyatna visited a village in North Sumatra because he was concerned that the remaining 10% of the orangutans in the Batang National Forest were threatened. He realized that to save the orangutans, he had to save the forest. The two went hand in hand. The orangutans ate the fruit that the forest bore, and then they dropped the seeds all over the forest floor to plant new trees. But to save the forest, Dr. Supriyatna had to face the fact that the government had auctioned off most of it to mining companies and loggers. To stop their devastation of the forest, he had to find jobs for the villagers who would be employed in the mining and logging operations. The team from Conservation International then met with villagers and took them into the forest to meet some of these creatures that they had never even noticed. The villagers wanted to protect these animals, and they would, if only their jobs did not depend on the mining and logging companies that were being developed. And so the Conservation International team also met with the local mining company, the loggers who owned the forest, and with a wealthy energy investor who wanted to tap the area's geothermal pockets for energy, and with some government representatives. The team drew up a plan for how much money the villagers could make if the forest were to remain intact. The plan included growing and selling cocoa, cloves, cinnamon, and rubber on the edges of the forest, along with royalties that they'd received from the geothermal project. A number of significant things were accomplished. The orangutans will survive, it seems, because the forest itself will live. That's good, not only for the orangutans, but for the whole earth. The business folks are satisfied that the logging and mining would not be all that advisable or profitable anyway, and the villagers had jobs for the present and for the future. The same Dr. Supriyatna accomplished something similar in Indonesia's Batanggetis tropical forest. Again, the problem developed around selling the forest to mining and logging operations. But this time the tactic was different. A river flowed out of the forest and onto the property of an Islamic school. The Conservation International team convinced the leader of the school, the Imam, that the industries planned for upstream would pollute the river in which the students washed five times a day prior to praying. The Imam taught the students about the value of keeping the river clean for the sake of their own health. The students told their parents, and the parents came together to learn what they could do. They learned, in fact, when they came together that a hundred thousand acres of rice paddies would be imperiled if the river became contaminated or blocked by jammed logs. The villagers came away from it all, recognizing the need for more education so that their children might qualify for jobs that would further maintain the environment rather than continue destroying it. Forests, orangutans, food, living conditions, environment, education, 
all because people were able to find meaningful and productive labor. Now, accomplishing all that on the part of Conservation International required a love for people, a concern for animals and plants and the atmosphere, a skill at working diplomatically with all kinds of people in an honorable way, a well-reasoned strategy, well, let's call it wisdom, for pulling together villagers, business people, government authorities, religious leaders, and children. What happened was that appealing to the self-interest on the part of every one of these groups led to justice that benefited all of them. Whether they knew it or not, they had contributed to the glory of God, the creator of the world, the lover of justice. God loves it when a plan comes together. Interestingly, the stories illustrate many of the principles of fair trade. Those principles, let me list them for you, are these. Number one, fair wages for work performed. Two, cooperative workplaces and artisan groups. Three, consumer education. Four, environmental sustainability. Five, financial and technical support. Six, respect for cultural identity. And seven, public accountability. My own experience has confirmed the power of these principles as well as the interconnectedness of so many of the pieces. My experience, I should say, is due to Yusuf Chaman and his wife Jenny, who hosted and escorted Janine and me on a learning tour to Pakistan. Yusuf is the director of the RUG program at 10,000 Villages, and Jenny is the operations manager of the same program. We spent our time there in Pakistan in the midst of people who make hand-knotted rugs. They are part of a group known then as Jaxis. The name has changed very recently to Bunyad, an Urdu word that means foundation. 850 families participate in this group, and we had the privilege of meeting some of the people who raised the sheep and sheared them. We met some of the ones who spun the wool and those who dyed the wool. We sat at the looms of men and women who actually tied the knots. And then we met also the people whose work began when the rugs came off the looms, the ones who trimmed the nap to make it even, and the ones who washed each rug three times with water and Clorox. We met those who nailed these rugs to the frames to keep them square while they were drying in the hot sun. The stories that these people told us had a consistent theme. Their lives changed dramatically for the better when they became part of this fair trade group. Yusuf estimates that in, instead of the $2 a day they would earn from factories on the outskirts of city doing the same kind of work, these artisans earned between 6 and $10 a day. We sat one afternoon in the courtyard of a man named Aslam. He told us that the pay he receives for his work in knotting rugs enabled him to buy the home where he and his family lived. He's able to feed his family well and, and to keep them clothed. But what enthused Aslam most of all was the fact that his children now have what he and his wife never had, the chance to go to school. Aslam spent much of our time together that afternoon 
displaying the plaques that his children received for their academic accomplishments in school. He told us about his oldest son, who was away studying to become a doctor. The son writes to him regularly about what he is studying, what he is doing to prepare for the future. Aslam's daughters need to read him the letters because he's not able to do so. But not long prior to our visit there, the son wrote that no matter what he accomplishes, he'll always remember where he came from and the commitment of his parents to educate him. At one point, Aslam almost reflected on it all, and he became a bit emotional when he said, if my son did not have a pen in his hand, he might have a gun. As we moved from village to village, we met members of Bunyad, some of whom were Christians and others who were Muslims. We ate meals at the table of a Muslim cleric, and we heard the stories about how the Muslims in the village helped the Christians rebuild their deteriorating church building. The Muslims even shared in the Christians' concern that the sewer would not come near the sacred ground on which the church stood. Obviously, it was not religion that brought them together. It was justice in the form of fair trade and human dignity that led to peace in the village. God loves it when it comes together. Work when it is not toil, you see, can build homes in a community, put food on the table, provide education for the children, endow a sense of dignity, and pave the way for peace in the world. It can also protect the environment by giving, for example, options to cutting down and burning forests. It can lead to new generations of people who contribute to the welfare of so many others. It gives, as the prophet Jeremiah called it, a future with hope. For those of us who breathe in the free and unconditional grace of God, God calls us to exhale, to love our neighbors, among other things, by seeking justice in the world. One of the ways we can go in peace and serve the Lord is by promoting what is fair in labor and in trade. And God will be pleased that here and there it comes together. Before signing off, I want to thank Lisa Bell for providing the music with her song, It's All About Love. I also want to give special thanks to my daughter, Dana Gillen, who serves as my producer for these podcasts. Until next time, then, go in peace. Serve the Lord. Mm-hmm.